It was an hour before the Indians paused again, and then they stopped so abruptly that prisoners were tripping over each other. It frightened Eben. What was going to happen? What dread plan might the Indians have for their white prisoners now? No Indian lifted a weapon. They stood motionless, looking west. Eben watched for several moments before he was able to pick out distant figures coming toward them. It was not rescue. If those were English, the Indians would long ago have surrounded and attacked them. Slowly the shapes turned into men, men carrying burdens, men bent double under the weight, yet not staggering as Eben had. They looked as if they had killed and were carrying entire cows. They were very close before Eben realized he was seeing warriors carrying their wounded. Each hurt man was rolled up into a package, swaddled like a baby in blankets, and strapped to a warrior's back. These men were carrying, by their foreheads and on their spines, a weight equal to their own. Caroline B. Cooney, The Ransom of Mercy Carter. Welcome back to the Wellhouse Exorcism. and this is your ghost of a host with the most, Shanna. It's Pukwa PJ. Who's making a bong bong sound. Bong. Very nice. Thank you. Well, honey, how are you? you having Exhausted, a... but I'm good. Having a day? I'm having a day. Okay. Do you, want, <laughs> do you want to talk about it? I mean, sometimes you just have to replace a faucet because <laughs> the entire spigot falls off of the rest of the faucet. <laughs> And then you can't replace the faucet because you don't have the tools or the ability to <laughs> to reach the stinking bolts to unscrew it. That's why you pay somebody. Yep. I said that yesterday. Didn't want to pay somebody. I know. <laughs> but our last name is? Yeah. There you go. All I right. know. All right. So why are we here tonight? To record a podcast. What? I know, right? I wasn't invited. We are here to do a follow-up for the Paris Sabrina Bigley interview. Yeah. And discuss the Plum Tree Massacre. Yeah, we were very intrigued by this because we had never heard of it before. Yeah, because we... We knew of the Wyoming Valley Massacre. That one's easy. You like that? Well, that's our area, too. Yeah. Plum Creek is further away from us, so that's kind of why. I I actually included the Wyoming Valley Massacre in my, my script tonight. Ooh. You're welcome. So tonight we are going to discuss the Plum Tree Massacre. And the haunting of Jody Hill's house. The haunting yes. of Hill House, if you will. Ha! See what I did there. <laughs> My references for this evening will be the Williamsport Sun Gazette, the Pennsylvania Rambler, North Central Chapter 8 Society for Pennsylvania Archaeology, and the Revolutionary War Journal. I watched a TV show. Yes, you did. The Dead Files would be our, <laughs> our last reference. All right, so what is the Plum Tree Massacre? I don't know. I know you it's don't. It's a massacre. <laughs> That's why I'm here. Around the plum tree? Yeah. One tree. One singular tree. Not singular tree. <laughs> which is contrary to popular opinion. Is yes. it a plum tree? Are there plum trees? There are wild plums in this. Okay. Thank goodness. Are they still there? Can I eat them? No, they're no longer there. Dang it. So, And I wouldn't suggest eating them because there's a cemetery where they once were. Hmm. You probably don't want to eat them. Hmm. Anyway... The Plum Tree Massacre, I want to give you a little bit of a backdrop here. A group of pioneers were ambushed in a violent attack amidst the boughs and thickets of wild plums, according to the Williamsport Sun Gazette. 
This area is what is now known as West 4th and Cemetery Streets. While we call it the Plum Tree Massacre, it's also known as the Plum Thicket Massacre, which I think is better because the thicket implies more than one tree. It is among one of the bloodiest moments in the early history of Pennsylvania. The settlers living in what is present-day Lycoming County were fighting for their lives against an enemy whose entire plan of attack was composed of ambushes and lightning raids designed to elicit as much terror and destruction as possible. The Plum Tree Massacre was one of three separate attacks in the area, and it was by far the bloodiest. All three raids were within five miles of each other, and there were more possible victims, as several bodies were never found nor heard of again. Some were taken captive with reports of torture, and one African American was burned at the stake. This Plum Tree Massacre would be the precursor to the Great Wyoming Valley Massacre of July 3rd through 4th, 1778. This raid, 50 miles east on the north side of the Susquehanna River, resulted in the killing of just over 300 Continental troops and settlers. Over 100 people were taken prisoner, spending years in captivity. Wow. Years. Yes. Isn't that a happy backdrop? So happy. You feeling it in your soul? One of my former students lives on Cemetery Road. Yes. Um, nice and creepy. Well, Cemetery Road, is it road or street? It may not be the same. Not the same. Okay, not the same. West 4th and Cemetery Streets. Hmm, okay. Yes, so that person over there is good. They can eat their wild plums. Okay, they can find any. If they have any. (laughs) They have any. Um, So with that being said, we know a lot about the Wyoming Valley Massacre because we had to do a big presentation on it for our bicentennial or whatever it was here in our town. Um, But... So this is further out where we work. And mm-hmm. actually they mention um, some of the locations where like the Lycoming Mall now is. Huh. So in some of the readings, I was like, okay. I know where that is. Okay. I know where that is. Um, I kept that out of the script just because anybody not from the area is going to be like, uh-huh, whatever that is. Like Jackie on <laughs> California. Um, so I kept that out of here. But it is, I mean, right where we work, which is kind of crazy to think about. So do you remember what happened? From the TV show. Oh, I'm like, you just told me. <laughs> that was it. Cake night. See you guys. See you next week. Um, That just people were scouts, killed women, children, men. Uh, and it happens like in the blink of an eye. Like people had no idea what the heck was happening. Yeah. Uh, when it when it started. Um, and yeah, people like hid in their houses and tried to do whatever they could to uh, escape it. Well, that was just in general for the Wyoming Valley Massacre. Yeah. But for this one, they couldn't get into a house because they're in the middle of nowhere. They were in trouble. Hmm. They was in the trouble. So at dusk on June 10th, 1778, a wagon load of pioneers were viciously attacked. The Native Americans fired two guns, then three, and then they left their place of concealment to surround the wagon. People escaped as fast as they could, and those who did flee could see the carnage from the distance. They saw the Native Americans attacking women and children with tomahawks. So that just kind of hurts to know that men ran away and left ladies to, and children to defend for themselves. We'll get into that. Well, you know. No, I don't know. Why don't you explain <laughs> to me why you would leave us? They went to get some milk and never came back. Oh, my gosh. No. This is supposed to be a spooky podcast. All right. So who was in the wagon train? Men and women and children. Yes, but they have names. Oh, Peter Smith. Good for them. <laughs> just because you had a bad day <laughs> now i want you to remember the name peter smith though okay 
We don't like him. Okay. So Peter Smith and his entire family, which included his wife and six children. There were also five men from Captain Reynolds' company. So there's Michael Smith and Michael Campbell, two different Michaels. Michael Scott? No, Michael Scott, though. Sorry. Hmm. David Chambers and two men whose last names we know were Snodgrass and Hammond. We don't have first names. Was what? <laughs> Snodgrass. Okay. And Hammond. Snod with the D. Yes, not Snodgrass. <laughs> Nodgrass and Hammond, but not Hammond and Jurassic Park. Not yeah. sorry, not that one. And we don't know their first names, and we don't know much about them. Well, I'm gonna call him John Hammond. Okay, that's not confusing. Anyway, also From in the Jurassic wagon. Park. I oh I know. Also in the wagon train were Rachel King and her two children, Sarah and Ruth, who were four years old and two years old. So little Pip's weeks. Now, Rachel and her two children had been safely ensconced at Fort Muncie, but they were talked into coming along with Peter Smith to get to the new settlers fort along Lycoming Creek, where her husband, William King, was along with Robert Covenhoven and James Armstrong. So she didn't want to go because she was safe in Fort Muncie. But Peter's like, come on, come on. Your husband's building this new place up there. You can come on with us. Come on. No need for him to come back on a different different trips. Come on, let's go. She did not want to go, but she was finally convinced because it would save her husband an extra trip. Obviously, it was an <laughs> ill-chosen decision. Wow. Yeah. Bad yeah. luck. Yeah. That's not good. And it's because of Peter Smith that she actually goes. So again, we don't like uh, him. Petey. Yeah, Petey. So just a background then, because we mentioned um, some trees in the past, but our listeners who are not from this area will have absolutely no idea what we're talking about. Oh, okay. is this the treaty? This is one of the treaties, yes. So there was a treaty called the Treaty of Fort Stanwix in 1768, and that's where the Iroquois sold the land east of Lycoming Creek to the English. So they did this as a desperate attempt to take the pressure off of the incursions of settlers who were kind of hopping onto the Sioux Nation's land, especially in upstate New York. So they said, fine, you can have this land up into this creek. That's yours now. Please don't go beyond that boundary line. Mm -hmm. Now, while the province of Pennsylvania threatened fines and imprisonment for anyone making, quote, improvements... Which is kind of funny to say, you know, ways of, you know, farming and building. Yep. Um, making improvements on the Iroquois land. Settlers were moving in still. They were farming, building, you name it. So despite these actions, like the British Proclamation of 1763, which forbade settling west of the Appalachians, all East Coast Native American nations, like the Cherokee, were experiencing the same invasion of their lands. Which is what William King and his group were doing. They were illegally building homes and forts in this area. Doing white people things. Oh, my. Again, this is a podcast. Anyway, and what would become Jaysburg in the future? William King, Robert Covenhoven, and James Armstrong began to build this settler's fort. Their reasoning was they believed the creek mentioned in the treaty was actually Pine Creek, not like Homing Creek. Uh-huh. Yeah, so that was yep. their excuse. No wonder the Native Americans were angry. You know, you all should put signs up saying what creek is what. <laughs> Yeah, well, because in their treaty, they use their native language for the, the creek they were talking about. And so they go, I don't know what that creek is. You meant Pine Creek. Yeah. Yep. Ugh, anyway. We had no idea. So surprised. If only we had someone to translate. Because <laughs> there are a lot. <laughs> As we write this treaty for you. <laughs> oh, boy. Anyway, the sun was setting as the wagons made it to Loyal Sock Creek. So there you go, uh -huh. yeah, right close to uh, Lycoming. When they got there, they met John Harris. He told them that he had heard sounds of gunfire all along Lycoming Creek, and he advised them to head right back to Fort Muncie for safety. 
So they get lucky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they stop at Loyal Sock Creek, and this guy, John's like, I heard gun stuff. Go on back to the fort. It is not safe here. You know, there's many Native Americans attacking. Well, instead of taking heed, Peter Smith decided to continue toward Lycoming Creek. Dang while, it, I know. While Harris continued to the fort to make a report about what he had heard, he's like, hey, well, you go on. I'm going to go back to the fort. Bye. <laughs> I can just... Anyway. Yeah, Petey, the commanding officer, when hearing about the gunfire, sent 15 men to find Peter Smith and his party and to bring them back to the safety of the fort. However, it was already too late to save them. Smith's party was only about half a mile from the new settler's fort, so they're that close, half a mile to where William King was, when the Native Americans ambushed them from the thicket of wild plums. As soon as the wagons headed into the thicket, they were attacked. Because not just was this a thicket of plums... Added to it were piles of branches from the same plum trees that sellers had chopped down and then piled up to make a widened path to accommodate their wagons. So they made it better for the Native Americans to have a perfect place to ambush them. Well, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, during the first volley, Snodgrass, not Snotgrass, (laughs) was killed instantly by a bullet lodging into his head. Hmm. Yeah. The soldiers did return fire from behind trees, so they hopped off the wagon and got behind trees for a little bit of cover and started firing back. Two children, one boy and one girl, ran into the underbrush to escape. As Native Americans surrounded the settlers, the men ran off and abandoned the wagons, the women, and the children, leaving them to fend for themselves. Only one man, Michael Campbell, stayed and fought to save them, but he was soon overtaken by the Native Americans. He fought in brutal hand-to-hand combat with the Native Americans until he was overwhelmed. And we know that hand-to-hand combat with Native Americans was pretty rough. Uh, yeah, yeah. Also a dumb idea, probably, for a settler to go against a Native American. Well, but hand. I give him props because he stayed to protect well, the yeah. children. I'm just saying, like, and their guns. don't expect to win that yeah, fight. Yeah, no, no, nope, <laughs> not at all. Uh, This attack defined men's courage to either stand and fight or run to seek self-preservation at all costs. Um, So this actually became the first fight where people started saying, run for your lives, don't stay and fight, you know. Um, Peter Smith ran when the Raiders attacked, cowardly, obviously, leaving his family to be butchered. So I have my own feelings about Peter Smith because he's like, bye, Felicia, and leaves them all there to die as he runs away. Just took saying literally every man for himself yeah yeah um fun fact in later occurrence is this a fun fact (laughs) well to make us (laughs) i know we use that a lot um so it just shows much we're gonna hate pd here in later occurrences after the plum tree massacre peter smith is mentioned twice during other native american attacks oh geez do you think they're positive absolutely (laughs) So he survived the Plum Tree Massacre to be immortalized in history as being a coward two more times. In one instance, in early 1779, so a year later, Peter Smith enlisted the aid of six or seven men to help him in cutting his oats a mile below Jaysburg and Turkey Run. So the same area where his family had just been killed a year prior. While the men were reaping the oats, a musket exploded, striking James Brady. A Native American ran up and scalped him while he was alive, which is was very common. Peter Smith, instead of grabbing his gun, which is beside him, and saving his friend, okay, like, instead of, like, you know, boom, he just ran for safety. 
James's friends came out and found him still alive, and they took him back to his dad's house, where he died five days later. Hmm. In the second story that Peter Smith Gosh, is that's in, just one story. <laughs> yeah, it's one. He was traveling to the fort when Captain John Brady came upon him. Now, this is the dad of James, the man who was scalped. Okay? Just mm-hmm, put that mm-hmm. in there. Within a quarter mile of their destination, shots were fired in an ambush. Brady was hit and fell from his horse. As the horse raced past Peter Smith, he grabbed it and mounted it. He then raced to the fort for safety. When armed men headed back to help the captain, it was too late. He was scalped and left for dead. At the fort, Captain Brady's wife recognized her husband's horse, and she's like, um, sorry, how'd you get that? He told her, and this is a quote, Captain Brady was in heaven or hell or on his way to Tioga i.e. the major village of the Seneca Nation, the Iroquois. If they took you captive, they took you there. Yeah. Up so, northern PA, for people who don't know. Like, right on New York yeah, border. Yeah, New York border. So Peter Smith was a huge coward. And I hate him. Yeah. For all the history buffs out there, we could call him the Pennsylvania Effialtes. Yes. Yes, we could. The guy who betrayed yes, the, I... the 300 Spartans. Oh, right. Sorry. For people who don't for know. For the listeners. Yes. Hmm. And the comic book... He looks so good. <laughs> they, they, yeah. The comic book gets, and the, the movie 300, movie, gets yeah. a lot of hate for its visual representation, but it's all symbolic. Mm-hmm. Like, which, when you realize that, it's like, okay, I get why things look the way they do and stuff like that. But Oh, I love it. I love, they, yeah. they get the Spartan culture so perfect, you know, all of it. And the, forma- the battle formations mm-hmm. they make and... So much of it, so much of it, surprisingly, is is pretty darn accurate. Well, isn't and that, this is just me? I can't remember when that one guy loses an eye. He says, "Well, God saw fit to give me a spare." Isn't that true? Isn't that like part of the, the story? they were trained the moment that they are conscripted into the Spartan lifestyle and raised in the uh, barracks and everything? They were trained to be extremely witty. Yeah, um, but, but isn't like, it true that a guy lost his eye though? Oh. And I don't know. I think that's actually, he lost an eye, but he, he kept fighting. I know. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. I, and a lot of the witty things they say in that are 100% his, like, mm-hmm. like quotes from, you know, the texts. Like, our arrows will blot out the sun, and he, and Leonidas replies, we'll fight in the shade. Yeah. Like, that's an exact quote from, you know, people who wrote about it at the time. So, they, well, they are very witty. They were trained to because wit was one way to disarm really your exactly. uh, your enemy. Which and is the true. whole like not wearing armor is kind of true. They would dance onto the battlefield naked to again just mentally intimidate their foes. Listen, if I had a body like that, I'd be flaunting it too. <laughs> like I, I, I would sit down, eat some popcorn, and watch them fight. I got no problem with that. Anyway, moving on. I love you. So <laughs> history moment over. <laughs> Now that I have explained how much I absolutely despise Peter Smith. So, again, he leaves something there to So let's go back to the massacre now. He leaves something there to be massacred and butchered apart. Mm-hmm. So as that was happening, the group of 15 soldiers um, that were sent from Fort Muncie, they encountered the boy and the girl who had escaped. Due to his fear, the boy could not fully explain where the massacre was happening, and therefore the soldiers went the wrong way, near the west branch of the Susquehanna, not like Homing Creek, or anywhere near the Plum Grove, unfortunately. <laughs> By the time they figured out their mistake, the sun was already down and the damage had already been done. They stumbled upon two bodies, but a- unable to see in- anything in the dark. They returned to Fort Muncie to come back in the morning. 
In another variation of historical documents, I noted in two of my documents, so I think this is probably the more true version, they pressed onto Jaysburg and came back in the morning with William King. Okay. So one ver- one story, they go back to their fort and they go in the morning and then he meets up with them there. But in two different accounts that I read, they went on to Jaysburg to the settler's fort and they came back at first light with William King. Regardless, when they returned at first light, they found the bodies of the two soldiers once again, so knew they were in the right area. They were Snodgrass and Campbell. Remember, Campbell had stayed to fight. Yeah. Snodgrass's body had been mutilated. So remember, he'd been shot in the head and died instantly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then they mutilated his body, which was not uncommon by the Native Americans back then. They wanted to scare you. Yeah. I mean, the so. best way to protect their land is to try to keep people from... Yeah. Ever going back into it. You, th- you think we're native? We'll show you how native we are. Yeah. They began to search the plum thicket. They were met with more horrors. The wife of Peter Smith was found shot through the body, stabbed, and scalped. The children who could not get away were found dead. A girl and a boy were killed and scalped, for example. Hmm. The boy who had escaped reported that when he ran and hid with his sister, he had heard Rachel King scream, and she was saying she would not be taken. He insisted then that Rachel must be somewhere near. When the Native Americans tried to drag her away, she fought. They found her a short time later near a small stream. Rachel King was found to have been tomahawked and scalped, but she was still alive. She sat up, and as her husband approached, she seemed to recognize him. This must have been a horrible surprise, as William King had no idea his wife and two girls were even a part of the party. (laughs) Remember, in this one storyline, they go up to his seller's place oh. and bring him back first light. And they haven't told him, hey, by the way, your wife and kids were in this wagon. Yeah. So he is completely surprised. Yeah. So he rushes to her. She He holds her in his arms. She leans on him and she dies. According to the John Meganis of Lycoming County, he's a historian, it is quoted that Rachel had, quote, rested with her hand under her head with her brains oozing over her fingers. Remember, she was scalped. King would then spend years looking for his two daughters, who were stolen by the Native Americans. Two Smith children were never found. That's one heck of a scalping. Like, I didn't... Everything I always heard about scalping was, like, the skin. They never cut through the skull like that. Well, and it depends uh, on how they pop it, because there are stories of when they they do their cut to the front and to the sides, and they pull back. Yeah. I think there were... Was it Mr. Oh, no, you weren't in Mr. Cooper's class because you weren't in school yet. You were at your Christian school, the Catholic school. In fifth grade, he went into a lot of detail. And, Uh. like, they actually have stories of, like, the sound. Oh. Yeah, of the scalp being pulled off. And sometimes people did not have, like, their skulls attached. Yeah. Later they did. And people did survive scalpings. Yeah, yeah. There are stories of that, too. But, yeah. So, yum. Yeah, something I would like our historians to answer, email us if you know, or maybe you know, is like the body, like scalping we know was a common practice among enemies, you know, for many Native American tribes. But the whole body mutilation thing and stuff like that, is that something they strictly did to try to prevent further colonization or was that also common practice? You know, I don't know. Well, and because they're supposed to be peaceful people. Exactly. So, like, I could see them just taking these extreme measures just to try to stop the settlers from pushing further. Yeah. Well, it does work, fun fact, because after these three ambushes, 
uh, there were people ran away. It was called the Great Runaway, I believe, or the Big Runaway. Yeah. So they hopped, they hopped in their boats, and they went right back. Yeah. And <laughs> so. you could see, like, they'd be like, like, finally, like, we figured something out. Like, how yeah. long is it going to last, though? You know, yeah. but. Well, in any case, yeah. two of Smith's children are never found. Okay, so we have two that run away, two that are killed, and then two that are just gone. So they are either taken prisoner or killed later. We don't know, mm-hmm. but there is no more history of them. So he effectively loses his entire family. Wow. I mean, he has the two kids left that are now horrified because they watched their mother's mother and, of course, their friend's mother get killed in front of them. So mm-hmm. so anyway, the end result of this massacre was eight dead and four survivors with William King's two daughters missing. Peter Smith's wife and four of his six children were among the dead. His actions directly resulted in that. Had he listened to Harris, everyone could have survived and been safe. The bodies of all were collected and buried right where they had fallen, pretty much. Mm-hmm. And this is most likely why the cemetery was created there later, hence this being 4th Street and Cemetery Street. Hmm. Yep. As for William King's lost daughters, they were later found alive in Canada and recovered after the war. So uh, different accounts, some say five years, some say seven years. Regardless, he learned that they both had witnessed their mother being tomahawked. So they got to see oh that gosh. at the ages of two and four. They had been taken to Tioga. The two-year-old Ruth was carried north to Canada by a squaw and sold to an Englishwoman who apparently couldn't have children. She was still with that family when William found her and identified her. They all came back to Pennsylvania to live out their days. Sarah had been adopted into the Iroquois family, but was returned to Fort Niagara to reunite with her father. Ruth would go on to marry and move to New York to live out her days in comfort. However, Sarah remained with her father until he died in Jaysburg in 1802. He was then buried near the grave of Rachel, his first wife, even though he had remarried. Sarah lived with her half-brother then on a farm close to the Plum Thicket where her mother was killed, and she died in Williamsport in 1850, so right before Mm. the Civil War. Okay. So they do have, you know, about 50 years together, which is nice. Well, she with her half-brother, and of course, she gets a couple years of the dad before he passes away. So uh, for people currently living in Williamsport, because I was looking this up, um, it's right where the pajama factory is. Real. So, is there a cemetery still there? Um. Yeah, the Mount Carmel Cemetery. Mount yep. Carmel Cemetery in Williamsport. Uh huh. Now I'm very confused. Okay. <laughs> and right behind it is Mound Cemetery. Oh. Okay. But yeah, it's uh, Cemetery Street is literally one street south of Rose Street which is what we take to get mm-hmm. to the pajama factory. Okay. So everyone, please don't go over there and try to graffiti or do satanic rituals. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, we discussed all that because that is our backdrop then to the actual haunting um, that Paris Sabrina was a part of that made the dead files. Now, of course her book haunted freedom is not about the Jody Hill case at all. No. It's about her own personal story on freedom road. Uh, but the Jody Hill story is just terrifying yeah Yeah. horrifying oh my gosh and i thought it was a good connection then to what we read last week Mm -hmm. so the haunting jody hill she was constantly being harassed frightened and attacked by a spirit or spirits question mark yeah even with the help of paris sabrina and the travel channels the dead files the paranormal just wouldn't stop jody hill lived on memorial avenue in williamsport she moved there in 2004 she says she got a weird vibe as soon as she set foot in the house. She did not want to live there at all. She went about the house. Like, she did not want it. Mm-hmm. Add to this was the fact that she spent a lot of her time alone um, since her husband worked long hours. 
So in total, she was terrorized in that house for three years. Yeah, we were in college yeah. when she finally moved out. So how did it begin? Like every other haunting, she started with hearing some sounds, including footsteps in other rooms, some weird smells. She told herself that the sounds of footsteps and other sounds were just people walking by the house outside because it's Williamsport. You know, it's busy. Mm -hmm. So she knew she was lying to herself, but it helped her sleep at night. Then she began to be touched daily. She also saw shadows. Soon, she felt like she was never alone, even to the point that once she got in the shower, she felt like someone had just climbed in there with her. She could feel in the, the back of the shower. Yeah. yeah. Isn't that awful? Like, oh, let me get in I behind I hate you. that. I know. So much. I, I, I always have this, like, well, it started with, like, this nightmare of me in the shower and someone just running in and, like, tackling me while I'm in the shower. <laughs> and, you know, like, how creepy would it be to just, like, turn and look and see, like, a figure just rushing at you through the shower curtain, you know? And, like, just the idea of something being, like, behind you in there. I think, um, just you know, terrible. you'll just hear the wee, wee, wee. Because <laughs> <laughs> why not have Psycho in there? Uh, but classical movies, of course, like, make us scared. But you know that I just, I hate sharing a shower. Like, I want to be in there by myself. <laughs> I just hate sharing anything. Like, because that's my alone time. And I have, I too have felt like someone's in the shower with me when I'm supposed to be alone. But I turn around and, and it's a our cat. freaking cat. Yeah. <laughs> Toby there. Like, it hit the face with water. Oh, Toby. He's a Maine Coon for our listeners. So he loves water. But now Binks has been doing it. But yep. Binks is not like water. So he's like, oh, I hate this. And he runs away. <laughs> now that we're off on a tangent for our listeners, uh, you may not have heard of Williamsport, but you have definitely heard of it, its most uh, famous contribution to the world, which is Little League Baseball mm -hmm. started in Williamsport. Yep. So that's uh, that we're talking about that city when we talk about Williamsport. It's in terms of cities, it's small, but it's still mm -hmm. a city uh, in Pennsylvania. And beautiful artwork and stuff down downtown too. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I'm currently on a billboard, an electronic one with Alice. I know, I can't believe they put it back up. <laughs> That's great. I'm I'm popular again. So anyway, back to Jody and the haunting cuz this is supposed to be a scary podcast, PJ. Is it? She refused like me to spend much time in the basement. Just like me, she only went down there to do the laundry. I feel her in my soul. The reason why? She would hear hammers and wood being moved like someone was working on a house or something down there. Even more, she once saw a Native American sitting on top of like a pipe in the basement. Uh, he was, And she saw him clearly because he was wearing brown pants and he had white feathers in his hair. Like she could yeah. describe him down to a T. Now, her husband also witnessed things, especially in the living room. Uh, he said that he saw a man sitting in the living room beside his wife. On the armrest of a chair. Yeah. Yep. You turned the TV off, and then the reflection of the TV was this guy. Sitting there. And he said he didn't look happy. Yeah. At all. And Jody, before that, had seen a man in her living room in work boots walking around. And he was like just a dark figure, like a dark dark shadow of a yeah. man. But then her husband sees this reflection in the TV. He looks back, looks back in, and like it's he's not there on the chair, but like in the reflection he is. And he noted that um, what he saw was a person that was wearing like a farmer's hat. And again, as you said, not happy to be there. Yeah. So the farmer's hat is important, actually, for later. So trying to find answers, Jody met with Paris Sabrina, Sabrina Beakley, and her group of paranormal investigators. Uh, Sabrina happened to be one of her actual friends, so she knew that she'd get some help. 
Now, from this, she learned much, but was unable to ignore the strange experiences because the entity moved on to more scary interactions. So it moved on to physical assault, which we kind of mentioned in passing in our last podcast. Mm -hmm. After meeting with Sabrina, the entity pinned her down and sexually assaulted her for over an hour and a half. She was fully clothed the entire time, but she could not move. She immediately called Sabrina again. Sabrina was concerned and still believes to this day that the entity must have connected with her and followed her from a case of Mount Carmel and then immediately attached itself to Jody during that first meeting because it sensed in her an easy victim, um, which is sad because uh, Sabrina had said even in our her interview that the stories were eerily similar and Jody yeah. knew nothing about that Mount Carmel case. Now, in the movie, or in the movie, in the TV show, uh, in the master bedroom, Jody noted that she feels most scared there. Uh, she said that she would close the door and turn off the light and then, like, almost immediately be attacked in the room. Or she'd be afraid she'd be attacked. Mm -hmm. um, she said it would seem that something was trying to wake her up in a sexual way, um, provocatively. She would be held down and attacked um, constantly. She believes it stems from when she was attacked at the age of 12 because she was, she says in the, the episode, mm -hmm. that she was attacked when she was 12. Um, so she says, I know this would make me a good victim for this yeah. entity. When the attack happened and she told her husband, he actually ran around the house angry. He told it, like, stop attacking my wife. Come after me instead. Show yourself. Things like that. Yeah. He don't ever do that. Don't, <laughs> don't talk to it. But what happens is he wakes up with bruises on his lower back. So that moment, he knew that something otherworldly was going on and that it wasn't safe to be there. But they continue to live there. <laughs> which yeah and i think that's something we got angry about within the tv show too was the husband because he even had like his own place like in the garage right yeah he had a little man cave that he just escaped to all the time like he works long hours and then i'm not gonna be in the house with you honey bye sorry you're having a bad time yeah <sighs> anyway. and, and she know like it's no secret that she was afraid to be alone in the house you know he he knew about this and still would just not yeah ugh However, even with the paranormal investigator's help, Jody still experienced activity. She would still hear footsteps. She also saw and felt other forces in the house. Now, according to the Dead Files episode, she had seen dark figures throughout the house. Most notable, in fact, um, was when Amy Allen, she's the medium for mm -hmm. Dead Files, she actually saw a spirit of a farmer in front of the house. And he said that a female Native American was the reason for all the activity toward Jody Hill. So... I find that interesting because there are a lot of farmers, of course, in that time period. Yeah. It could have been Peter Smith. <laughs> just saying, no. But then, of course, the husband sees a man, like, in this like, farmer's hat sitting close to Jody. So, um, in, in any case, I said, like, when it came to the female Native American causing all the activity, it's not true. Because, as Amy Allen stated, this entity, she could tell, could take many forms. Mm -hmm. um, so she believed the entity pretended to be a farmer to lure her into a sense of safety. Yeah. But she never felt like she just knew from the get-go this thing is not a good thing to talk to. Yeah. And the neat thing for those who haven't seen The Dead Files, uh, the premise of it is uh, there is there are two hosts, a man, Steve, Steve and Amy... The medium. the medium. And Steve will go in first. Yeah, he was a former Marine and a police officer. And he's a demonologist. Yeah. And he'll go in first, interview the people, take down any pictures, anything that can identify them. And then that night, Amy will go through without talking to anyone and get like her... Just a person recording her. Yeah. And get her own... Oh, oh. So, <laughs> uh, re real quick... 
they put this dumb filter on the screen whenever like it's her her time and it's the cheapest chintziest looking thing and Remember, i hate it so it was much. recorded in 2004 through 2007 time period so like i know but that still doesn't mean they should have put a filter on they could just it didn't bother me until you oh, mentioned it and yeah. then it started bothering me it's all your fault that i can't enjoy this show anymore i mean so i do want to keep watching because like i love the premise yeah. and i think that these two are legit you know it adds validity and i like that um to quote sabrina from last week they're not just looking for ghost Easter eggs, you know, they're actually like providing solutions mm -hmm. where ghost hunters and all those people, they're like, Oh yeah, it's haunted. Bye. <laughs> and they don't give any hints or help. You know, these people actually give options of like, here's yeah. what you should do next. If that doesn't work, then move on to this. So I do like the purpose of the show and everything. I just, I hope that in later seasons, they kind of fix some of the production quality. Oh my so. gosh, gotta stop. Well, anyway. <laughs> Anyways, so what I was saying is, uh, yeah, like, it's interesting how Amy, without having any knowledge of the property, was able to get these images mm -hmm. and, you know, see the same things that she was hearing, or that Steve was hearing about from, from Jody. Well, I took her and she's like... She almost has Native American features. Like, she yeah. was confused. <laughs> but anyway, according to the Dead Files episode, the Native American male that was seen in the basement could be Chief Cornplanter, which um, is, like, their way to translate his language. Mm -hmm. But he was a war chief of the Seneca tribe. So according to many accounts, uh, Chief Cornplanter didn't want to fight, but he loved his people. So, Torn, he held everything to a vote. The majority ruled, so he, he went along with all the attacks. So, he's a very peaceful person, but his yeah. people told him to, yeah. And again, like like I was saying earlier, like, desperation can make you do some things. Yeah. And who knows, maybe that's what, you know, that's why he was, you know, had that reputation in the end. Yeah. And well, since the British gave them guns, they were able to attack ambush style. Mm -hmm. So Amy saw him in the basement as well, and she sensed that he felt guilty, actually, which she mentions in the episode. Um, he told her his people worshipped whatever the monster entity was, and that they had to do things for this devil or it would do terrible things. So she had this combination where she notices him and he feels guilty for whatever he had done in the past, but also there's a connection to this demon thing that's in the house. Now... In another interesting moment when they're outside, Amy says she hears lots of gunfire. She sees someone hiding. It's a, it's a male and he's scared. And she hears all this gunfire, all these screams. Women were screaming and running in her vision. Um, men were yelling and shooting at each other. So she had just envisioned the massacre, most likely the Plum Tree Massacre, but had no idea. Mm -hmm. Because, again, she has no, no knowledge of the background of where she is. Now, she also learned much about the female Native American. This squaw had a lot of anger. Uh, she didn't want to hurt anyone, but she believed that white people needed to learn a lesson. And most notably, she believed they deserved what happened to them. So she got that feeling from that Native American that she's like, I don't mm. want to do this, but they deserve it. So again, it kind of fits that concept, like how do we keep our land? Yeah. Um, she also noticed that this Native American woman followed Jody around all the time. She even saw this squaw following her into the shower, which again, she mentioned before she ever met Jody. So yeah. she had no idea that, that was a thing. And when she talks to Jody, she's like, you have to know that she's there. <laughs> like, you must feel it. <laughs> yeah. um, interestingly, the squad told Amy that the evil entity had been in this area for a very long time. So this spirit knew that. 
Yeah. So again, like a kind of a cool connection. Well, not cool, but yeah, it's still cool. But anyway, Amy then focuses on the evil spirit. She said that while talking to the entity, she found out that it likes to torture and torment people. It also becomes heightened when people provoke it, when they start questioning it or agitating it. Um, It also told Amy that it had killed and taken souls already. It also stated that its focus was on Jody and that um, he, this thing said it was a part of Jody now and Jody was a part of it. And so that actually is kind of scary because when I was reading the Sun Gazette interview, during an interview, Jody told the, the people from the Sun Gazette that she actually had a dream prior to the Dead Files and she heard something telling her, I'm a part of you and you are a part of me. Mm. So she had never told anyone that, including her husband, because he's out in his, you know, garage manhole. But when she heard that phrase from Amy, she actually like started sobbing. It scared her so bad. But it was also vindicating, she said, because she had felt crazy during all of this. Yeah. No one was listening to her. You know, all the family thought she was crazy. So to have someone state something so similar to her dream made her feel a little less crazy. You know, now, Amy, of course, as you mentioned, she really does a close inspection of this demon. Um, she does see him in his real form, even though, as I mentioned earlier, she got the sense he takes on many forms. Mm-hmm. So she saw something that she would, she called like a classic devil. It had long claws and little horns, and it wanted to kill. She yep. also said that it, she felt like it was a trickster, a liar, a manipulator. Um, he even laughed over killing people. And when she's talking, it goes. I was I noticed this. She went from talking about it as an it to a he. She got mm-hmm. that distinct impression that that was male. So he even laughed over killing people. Amy learned he liked scratching his nails on walls and moving doors because it just elicited fear in people. She also noticed that he would do inappropriate traumatizing things to Jody. And she said that in her one vision, she saw him grabbing and licking Jody, which is, yeah. ugh, I'm sorry. Just, ugh. She also learned that the entity had found Jody's secret and he was attacking her with the secret. Now, at this point, Amy wasn't really sure what that was, but she deduced it probably was you know, sexual yeah. or an assault kind of thing there. She also believed that he was hiding in the closet. Um, so she had a friend kind of sketched the demon that came out of the closet and you saw this picture i hope we can post it to our facebook yeah we will yeah yeah and the way she describes it it made me think of american horror in a way because it's just like this black thing and it has like a shiny skin shiny skin which makes you freak out but it has these like claws for hands it has tiny horns um now in front of the closet door she kind of sees a female she doesn't know the person's name is jody but she sees this female who's very angry and she's shouting at this demon and so the image then that is created. Interestingly enough, with curly hair with, too. Yeah, short curly hair, which is what Jody has. Yeah. So I, again, I found that like, to me, it was just really, you know, validating to watch. Yeah. But it's also a TV show. So could they be like, you know, cutting and pasting maybe? But in any case, when the picture is pulled out of the envelope, Steve, the in, the other investigator, he actually says, oh, bleep. <laughs> so, like, yeah. you can tell that this is, like, not staged. Like, this is the first time he's seeing this picture. And when they put it in front of Jody, she starts sobbing uncontrollably, and her husband actually gasps. So. Yeah. Yeah, and he starts crying, too. Yeah. Not a happy picture, that's for no. sure. No. So anyway, because of all that, Amy did research the entity through the lens of Native American research, and she came across, um, like, a lot of variations of what it could be. So in different Native American lore, they called it the trickster, the clown, or the heyoke, which is a fun word to say. Uh, But according to all information, this entity was possibly once human, but it could also be half man, half spirit. So the idea is that it was once human, but when he died, he became something 
more. Mm -hmm. Um, So she did this research without her counterpart, Steve. Uh, So it actually added to the research, I feel. Yeah. uh, Because he was like surprised. He's like, oh, really? Okay, cool. And she says, even though she's like, no, I was raised Catholic. So we can call it by its Native American name, but I think it's a demon. (laughs) So (laughs) she says, because there's so much Native American, there's so much like just there's a presence of Native Americans here. I would suggest that you locate the local shaman for whatever Native American tribe is in this area, which would have been the Seneca Iroquois. And she's like, have them come do whatever it is they do. But then afterward, call the priest and have them do an exorcism (laughs) on the house, just as an extra. So they actually gave advice then uh, to Jody and Steve. Or not Steve, to her husband. Now, Steve then did research on the Plum Tree Massacre because, you know, he had learned about the land. So he learned about the former owners of the property as well. So in the show, you get a little background on the Plum Tree Massacre, which I've already gone over. But the research on the house, I thought, was kind of cool. Also kind of horrifying. So Oh, yeah. I forgot about this. Yeah. He learned that the Lord family owned this house for about 80 years. Many of the family members that owned the house uh, died in unexpected ways in the house. One sister just fell over one one day dead, like just done. Yeah. And they couldn't figure out what happened. But basically by today's standards, it'd be a stroke or a hemorrhage. That's, mm-hmm. that's all I could imagine. And then 10 years later, pretty much on the dot, her sister dies of the same thing in the same room. Like just yeah. bloop, dead. Um, what's spooky and really creepy was that Amy noted a sickness like in the house. And she was in just a room where the people had died. So again, this is before she starts any of the research. And she even sees a woman climbing up the wall and then disappearing like into oh, the Oh yeah, into the oh. into the floor above them. Yeah, like oh, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. And she saw all that the same night that she was talking to the entities and it was recorded. So again, like to me like oh, it just gives me chills. Uh she couldn't really figure out how they were connected to Native Americans, but she did state that the one female entity that crawled up and disappeared um had a pain. And her pain was still there in the house in a physical way. So whatever this entity was, like, it's just there. And it hasn't, it's like a lost soul almost. Um, But anyway, since the dead files, Jody has said that she could no longer see the entities, but she could still sense them. She could still hear them. All she could really hear them um, saying, though, was her name. And she often heard, help me. Mm. Like, if that's the little children asking for help, oh, you know. Yeah. Or it's the demon trying to get back in. Yeah. So regardless, she did listen to Amy and Steve and she brought in a Native American shaman, but it didn't stop the activity. It did slow it down a bit, she said. Mm-hmm. Um, however, since the show, churches have offered to help. She was most happy with the suggestions she got from others. She learned that forces like this feed on negative energy. So she made many positive changes in her life. She kept a positive mindset. This did slow down the paranormal activity substantially. Um, as she would no longer be this victim for them to feed off of. But according to Sabrina, as we already know, she has since moved from the home. (laughs) So, yeah, yeah. she that was it for her. Yeah. Um, And I understand, like, if if an exorcism doesn't work, I I wouldn't I don't we couldn't have stayed here. So I understand. Oh, yeah, for sure. I understand what uh, she was going through. Anything that I missed that we should add in there? No, that's that's it. Thank you. I try. So my question is. Do you think it's haunted? Yeah, I believe that story. I do. Yeah. I mean, she was very compelling in the TV mm-hmm. show. Like, yeah. I want to just give her a hug the whole time. Like, I, I do want to watch more Dead Files now, too. Well, let's I wanna... go. Tomorrow <laughs> Tomorrow is going to be an easy day for us, so we might as well That's right. be up late tonight. <laughs> 
Now, I do want to say to our listeners out there, because this will be posted on October 8th. 8th. 8th-ish, 9th-ish. Okay. So, yeah, 8th. The following Sunday, the, the 15th. October 9th. Close enough. Um, <laughs> we're taking off that weekend because we're going uh, with our friends to the Pennsylvania Renaissance Fair. Woo! So I have chosen as the leader of this uh, podcast that we are taking uh, the, the week off so we can enjoy just time with our friends. I haven't seen my friend Ashley in quite a while. I just want you might know Ashley from the Games Overboard <laughs> Splendor episode. <laughs> if you're not, even if you don't like board games. Go to Games Overboard and listen to our Splendor episode. <laughs> the just, the, birds. <laughs> just the first like six minutes is all you need. It's true. Jackie, if you have not done that yet, <laughs> I know that you will really appreciate it. So when you're sitting still in traffic, please get on your phone and look up Games Overboard and look up the Splendor episode. And but it's like a half hour long <laughs> and we keep bringing it up throughout the whole episode. But the first six minutes are like really where it's at. I was attacked by birds and it was horrifying. We have video footage. Stop it. I hate that sound. Anyway. So <laughs> in any case, we're taking a week off. Then we'll be back the following week for our one year anniversary episode yep. of the podcast, which is crazy. Um, anything else you want to add? No. I do want to say we're close to 10,000 listens just for my podcast alone. I know. And I have a really cool sign that I already bought to put into another uh, giveaway. So when we get like up there to like, I mean, we're, we're pretty close now, but when we get like at 10K for just Specifically Will House, we're going to yeah. run a giveaway just for Will House. I've already decided. I'm oh, yeah. Kicking absolutely. games or board out. This is me. <laughs> <laughs> so, in any case, enjoy your week, all of my listeners. And don't forget, think spooky thoughts. If the white man wants to live in peace with the Indian, he can live in peace. Treat all men alike. Give them all the same law. Give them all an even chance to live and grow. All men were made by the same great spirit chief. They are all brothers. The earth is the mother of all people, and all people should have equal rights upon it. White Elk <laughs>